Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Cognitive Dissonance Podcast. We have a doozy of an episode for you today. We talk about a lot of things such as how the dopamine neurochemical system helps regulate our moods and our behaviors, how traditions and cultures are biologically produced phenomena, the pitfalls of social constructivism, influence and effects of rites of passage and traumatic events and the balance between compassion and tough love. Enjoy. Cognitive dissonance is the perception of contradictory information and the resulting confusion and anxiety from the difficulty to resolve those contradictions. We are here in that realm of contradiction and cognitive dissonance. We are here to infect your mind. Last time we covered a definition of behavior. Uh, What is behavior? How do we modify it? Why we modify it? Why it's important to do it deliberately? Um, I think one section we kind of skipped over or missed was like how behavior starts and how it turns into what we do today. And then I know that you wanted to cover some more, um, influences on behavior other than like just straight up boring learning history. But other than that, that's all I can remember. <laughs> yeah, we, we covered that. We did a um I don't know what you call them in your industry. In the education industry, we call them FBAs, functional behavior analysis. Um yep. we did one of those for, for the bird. Um, and then somehow volumes got messed up and I had to spend the next two days adjusting snipping my speaking points out and raising just those volume levels. So that was fun. Um, now, any, did you look at anything new or anything else for this? Or were you um, like straight up? No, <laughs> no, I didn't look up anything else. Yeah. I was struggling to, I was struggling to think of how we wanted to proceed as far as topics go. Um, So I went back to the trusty old neuroscience of adolescence book. Um, And I read the chapter on the dopaminergic reward system. Mm -hmm. Which it was, it was really interesting. Um, There's a couple things I can, point out to that but the reason I chose that or my reasoning behind it um, if our search for reward modifies or directs most of at least our unconscious behavior then that would be a good place to start Um, discussing the origin of behavior and also behavior moderation Right, not like modification, 
Um, although we can get back into that if we want to and, and discuss the pros and cons of different things such as like operant conditioning versus classical conditioning, um, cognitive behavioral therapy versus behavioral therapy. Cause I think that's an interesting conversation that we could have there too, as far as how they modify behaviors. I think that your more behaviorist approach is a bottom up. Whereas the cognitive behavior approach is the top down. Right. So yeah, that makes sense. Right. Um, Say you have a client that needs to learn how to brush their teeth without assistance or whatever. What you're going to do as the behavioral therapist is you're going to start finding ways to get them to actually physically enact the behaviors and then set up those patterns of rewards with that. And then they'll develop that cognitive structure on top of it. If this is why we do all that. But you start with that intrinsic reward first. Whereas the cognitive behavior, at least as to my understanding, um, the cognitive behavior therapist would start with reshaping the conceptual structures that people use that become pathologized, that affects their behavior moderation. And if you can adjust and fix the house from the top down, then they can enact the proper behaviors necessary to get a solid foundation. Yeah, I think from my perspective, brushing your teeth and underst like it's two different skills actually doing it versus I can tell you all the steps to brushing your teeth, the benefits, the pros and cons, but tons of people can do that and still don't do it. So I think they're both, to me, they seem like distinct skills the cognitive part versus the actual do, doing it. Yeah, that would go back to um, participatory knowing versus propositional knowing. Can you explain, it could be either propositional or even procedural. Can you explain the procedures or the processes for how something is done? versus can you actually manifest the behaviors to do the thing? Right. It's like reading a book on how to brush your teeth. It's like yeah. you may be able to extrapolate from that and learn how to do it yourself physically, but probably you're just going to know what to, how to describe how to versus actually doing it, which can, you know, some people learn well that way with the full picture and the kind of why I think I'm that type of learner where I really struggle to commit anything to memory without like, it's frustrating if I don't get it like, okay, what, but why, but why, but why? And I think there's lots of really annoying kids out there who refuse to do something until they get it. Um, and I'm one of them. So it's, yeah, there's a whole picture there, but not everyone needs that. Not everyone cares. Yeah, no, that's why I always struggled with math class. Um, yeah. Be, be, well, because I always viewed it very similarly to philosophy class. And here's what I mean by that. To take even a simple proposition like two plus two equals four, right? We have to agree that the symbol that we're using to describe two objects is the same symbol. Right, that I write a two and you understand what I'm meaning there. We have to agree on the, um, there's, a, 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 there's a set of 
axiomatic assumptions that go with mathematics that also equally apply to philosophy. Like there is something real to count and that organizing those groups together in ways gives you predictable outcomes that there is an objective reality to measure with numbers, that numbers are a real thing and not just an abstract con concept like language, right? People always say, well, mathematics is a universal language. And I was like, really? Do the aliens understand how we write number two, right? The, the ratios, the nature of the ratios might be universal. How we are communicating that is different. Right. And we have to have the understanding or the assumption that the universal is there for us to have that. So that's why I always got lost. Once you start throwing letters into my math language, I'm like, nope, I'm out. I'd rather just go talk about the general concepts rather than sweat over if I got this formula correct. Yeah. Well, one of them is more interesting. <laughs> so it's like, yeah. well, why don't we just not do straight up math and just talk about it? Um, I think what really blew my mind about math was and I don't fully understand this, so I'm not going to explain it correctly, but we use like base 10. So like 10 is kind of the mm -hmm. base of what we use and base 12 would be better because 10 splits in half, but 12 splits in half and thirds and fourths and eighths. Like maybe not eighths. Yeah. I don't know, yeah, and but that's why. the way that it was described, I was like, oh yeah, that would make sense. Ah, oh no. Well, so, and then you yeah, hear about we, those. We do it a specific way. You hear about those ancient cultures that had like base 12 or base 20 to where they could count. They could count up to like a thousand figures on one hand because they could hit each one and then each one had, each fingertip represented the different steps. And then you had the in-between knuckles that you could hit and you could just sit there and count up and do really heavy arithmetic on one hand. And that just blows my mind. I can't even do basic cool. arithmetic on two hands. You know? Yeah. It's a wonder that we have cell phones that can do math for us because I, I don't know how I would have room in my brain for having to like calculate my own groceries and, you know, figure out, like I still, when I have to figure out an age, like I get a document that has the year they were born. I still have to type that in to Google and be like 2022 minus 1957. <laughs> so I can figure out how old they are because it just, my brain is like, no, 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 no. You don't have to do that. So don't like, you're right. I'm not going to think about it. See, I'm, I'm the opposite with a lot of that. So I do, I joke with my students all the time that um, I try not to math in public if I can help it, but I am, I am that person that I'll get like two things from the gas station, throw them 30 bucks and then try and do the math in my head on the total to figure out what the remaining would be to go onto the gas pump. You can say, put the rest on the pump in their register can do that all the same way that our cell phones do but you know 90 percent of the time i'm right and it kind of keeps me on my feet but that's that practical math again understanding ratios and relationships i i i like that i do like looking at the world in a mathematical way i do not like having mm -hmm. to chart down and artificially explain 
that mathematical perspective on how much force it would take to close my bedroom door using formulas and graphs. And it's like, no, 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 no. There's no need for that. I'll just go close the door and then it's done. Yeah. The other thing about that is our bodies are kind of like, we're constantly calculating physics and trajectory. And like, if you play baseball, you're doing rocket science essentially mm -hmm. to, cause you know, the arc of, the ball and how hard to throw it and we don't know it in numbers but we intuitively know well if you're good you intuitively yeah. know how much force and what muscles to engage so there's yeah you don't have to sit down for our purposes you don't have to calculate and predict you know i need to take two steps and then i'll have enough momentum um your body is like i got you and does the math for you and that's awesome because we yeah. don't have to consciously do it. That's, that's why you can look at William and Orion, my eight and my six-year-old. They're both playing baseball, and William has just now gotten to the point where he's getting proficient with throwing. Not because he's bad at it, but you hand the baseball to Orion and you say, throw this to Gage or throw this to your coach or throw this to whatever, and he just does. He doesn't mm -hmm. think. He might try and, and model the, the base form, but outside of that, like he just he just does it. You hand the ball to William and he's so much like me. You say, throw the ball. And he's like, okay, how do I throw? <laughs> like he, he wants the graph and he wants the angle and he wants to see everything and he overthinks things way too much and hopefully I can help him get it under control before it cripples him in teenage years like it did me. Oh, dear. Well, I think sports are great for that because it's a clear, you did good, you did bad, and the stakes are pretty low for that. Like, I mean, there's some self-esteem in that, but, um, you know, it's a great time to practice, like, how to think quickly and well, and there's consequences. If you don't do it right, you know, you lose, you whiff it. Um, and it's, it's a great way to practice that type of failure and that type of success. Yeah, it's, um, it is a surrogate for the innate, how do I want to phrase this? It's a surrogate for the innate life-sustaining challenge that we all face inevitably, right? And, and so like you can do the, take that metaphor and make it simple and kind of concretize it, right? So take football, you have the two teams that represent the two armies and they're gonna go f literally fight on the battlefield, but it's under strict rules. So that way the fight has minimal damage, but it can still have that similar level of excitement and success and failure and all of that. Um, Right, baseball as a game of skill, it still has that meritocratic ranking order, that hierarchy of competence that arises. Um, but like you mentioned, the stakes are low, right? So if you go out and you strike out, it's not like you're going to die. Whereas, right. you know, the, whereas the, the more real world example of that would be, you know, you are in the military doing those things, your team versus their team, where if you strike out and you get shot, you have the very real chance of dying, right? One is way riskier than the other um, in sports as a surrogate for that to 
experience in a controlled way the chaotic and life-threatening competition that is life. I think it's pretty. I think it's pretty remarkable that human beings have figured out more or less how to do that in a humane way. Um, and, and Allegedly, that, and, yeah, there's a pretty I mean, and, well. We've gotten better at making sports more and more humane as time has gone on, but I yeah. mean, they used to just whack you. And, well, I mean, it, it, uh, it like, could oh, be that, like walk off that concussion. Yeah, well, and it could be some. You know, we could go as far back as to ancient Rome with the gladiator sports, right? Mm-hmm. And, the, and then you have that because it, 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 it is, it's the same thing. It is that surrogate for that, but instead of a surrogate for the people competing, because it wasn't if you lose, you die type of thing, you get tortured, eaten by lions. Like we hear all kinds of really fun stories of the participants of those games. Rather, it wasn't a surrogate experience for the gladiators involved. It was a surrogate experience for the crowd mm, right? as, yeah. a, as, a, as a way for them to, A, have social cohesion, something to do on Sundays, um, and B, as a way to... I mean, it's the same reason we go and we see the Marvel movies. We're, we're, we're enraptured by threat. We're enraptured by competition and challenge we're enraptured by how messy people's lives can be because people are complicated and complex and messy and so life is complex and complicated and messy and to go see that with no threat to ourselves right it's it's no wonder why people flew to those used to be brutal but now is only brutal in a fake way experiences yeah, the superhero genre, it's also a way to look at like like elite, you know, maximum. This is the coolest, best, most awesome dude, and let's watch him go. And that's kind of the appeal of, you know, like we want to flock to that greatness and pay attention. And it's the same in sports too, where because like golf is pretty boring but I've been watching the masters all weekend because it's cool to see people who are good at something do it well, even if like there's a total of like three seconds of action per like hour of watching someone golf. Cause they just stand there and they practice swing and then they whack. And uh, all of that just leads up to seeing how well they did it. And there's just something cool about it, even if it's not exciting. There's a, I don't know, there's a cool factor. If we take that from an evolutionary psychology perspective, it makes sense. So I, I try to get my students to understand, and mind you, they're in ninth grade, so there's no way for me to put it into terminology that they will understand. But nobody's told them half of the stuff that I tell them before, right? That like freedom and responsibility are the same thing. You can't have one without the other, right? If you have the freedom without the responsibility, then you're a slave to whoever it is that is holding and appearing and adhering to that responsibility for you. Um, mm-hmm. But another thing that I don't think they get told enough, one of the biggest things that people admire and are attracted to is competence, right? Mm-hmm. And there is, there's an evolutionary basis for that. We are going to be attracted to those people that are capable of doing the things that they say they're going to do. 
we are attracted to those people that can do it the best or better because like they're to use Darwin's terminology more fit, right? They have, if you're doing game theory, they have the higher fitness payoffs because they're the more competent. So it's no wonder why we're going to be drawn to those examples. Also too, we have the psychological drive to embody those examples ourselves so it's almost like twofold pressures we're drawn to that competence because we're attracted to it because that's going to help sustain our family and our generations blah 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 um but we're also drawn to emulate that right because that that's that's why we have going back to your example of the biggest baddest bravest whatever um that's why we have characters like superman and thor that are nearly indestructible right so they're almost the writers have to find ways to cripple the characters so that way the threat against them in the story and the conflict seem feasible and it's not just watching them demolish everything um but those characters are designed in such a way because they're the they're like the archetype of the archetype Right. If to if the archetype for hero is brave, they're the bravest. If the archetype for the hero is strong, they're the strongest. Right. And there is a reason that we're drawn to that because those are the those are the innate cultural values that have sustained at least Western society for, you know, five thousand years now. Yeah. The superlatives. Um, gotta be best number one. <clears throat> I do think it's, <laughs> um, I've lost my train of thought. Um, oh yeah, I was gonna say if it was, you know, it's healthy to have those like standards and, um, those aspirations, I guess. Uh, but it can also be very unhealthy and very crippling um, to like that obsession with being the best. Cause I'm just thinking of like social media and like pressures to appear as if everything is going a certain way and things are awesome. And you had the coolest party this weekend, you know, all of those pressures it's, good to have those and it can also be pretty unhealthy yeah we have among our many capable qualities mankind is very good at pathologizing things now part of that is i think part of that is our innate need to be able to deal with the particular while also keeping the absolute in mind right so and we can use the example of um we can use the example of a bird for instance because as far as it's the same evolutionary need of being able to pay attention and hyper focus on a particular while also paying attention to your surroundings and the the extended piece of things right so you're flying along as a bird you have to be able to pick up a single either prey or piece of seed or something against a backdrop that looks just like everything else 
But if that's the only thing you're paying attention to, when you dive down to get it, something will get you. So we have a, a perpetual and constant need to exist and pay attention to two different levels of existence at the same time. I have to be able to find food in my kitchen while being able to make sure that I have next week next week's work prepped out so I can continue to fill my kitchen with food. Yeah, so you're constantly taking stock of where you are and what you're doing and what everyone else is doing so that you can keep on. Um, and I think for some people that becomes like, a competition, which it is, but it's also not. I guess it is a competition, but it's not a big deal if you lose it. <laughs> like, I didn't do a perfect, you know, 500 calorie meal prep this week, and my neighbor did. Um, oh, well. Yeah, I don't really have an end to that thought. <laughs> That's fine. Um, let me take a quick, I hate to do it because we just started, but let me take a quick break um, and remind the kids that I have a microphone going on in the bedroom and that they need to kind of keep their voices down because I can hear them even with my headphones in, which means I'm afraid it's going to pick it up. Yeah, I haven't personally heard any, but who knows? Okay. So here's here's what I want to do now, if you're cool with it. Um, let me explain my big epiphany that I had this past week. There's, it's it's going to take some backstory, but here we go. So um, one of the things that I read in my neuropsychology uh, or the neuroscience of adolescence um, was why adolescents are more prone to 
risky behaviors and reward seeking than other age groups. And here's what I found out about the dopaminergic system. Um, the neurochemical dopamine, as I know you're aware, but just for our audience, is one of the chemicals that helps regulate um, our mood, gives us feelings of reward, pleasure, things like that. Um, during adolescence, during the, the gray matter development, the striatum and the prefrontal cortex are two of the regions that have the highest dopamine receptor creation during that time. In fact, there's a, during the adolescent years, an overproduction of dopamine receptors. And then as the, the brain finishes its development, it goes through those pruning stages and it clips off the ones that aren't used the most. Um, on top of that, studies have shown that adolescents are more they release more dopamine to reward behaviors than children or adults. So they have twofold pressures there. Not only do they, A, have more dopamine receptors with which to receive reward, they also overproduce dopamine to trigger those receptors. The biggest driver or the experiences that elicit the biggest responses in dumping their dopamine reserves, social interactions. That's why teenagers are more social. That's why they're more outgoing. That's why they're thrill-seeking. That's why they're adrenaline junkies. That's why they can't balance and manage risk because as we get older, what happens is between the pruning of our overproduced dopamine receptors and the regulation of our dopamine dumps, and the finalization of our prefrontal cortex, we become more cognitively able to examine future prospects to actually weigh risk versus reward. It's really difficult for teenagers by biological definition to even conceive of a bigger reward a week from now as better than a smaller reward today. Now, I say all of that to say this. There's also a high correlation with individuals that have heightened reward-seeking behaviors, adolescence, as an example, um, and a lack of unknown aversion Right. So th this correlation, what I mean by that is those individuals that have increased sensitivity to reward and are therefore more thrill seeking and exhibit more risky behaviors also by personality complex, right? On like the big five personality, they're higher in trait openness, which means they're more willing to engage with the unknown and novel experiences with which to get that reward. Here's my aha moment, because if it is dopamine and the dopaminergic system that regulates our reward-seeking behavior, 
and even regulates our personality dispositions towards novel behavior and experiencing the unknown to leave the light of the campfire to go find whatever treasure the darkness of the forest might have if we're using our old you know hunter-gatherer metaphors that we typically refer to um, with evolutionary psychology that means that Cultures and religions and stuff like that are the abstract evolutionary results of the dopaminergic system in our collective ancestry. Here's what I mean by that, right? So <laughs> we're like five layers deep right now, um, but I just, I haven't, been, yeah, I, I haven't been able to, to get this out of my head. Um, and I have something written down for it that I might read just so it's more coherent. Um, cause it's, it's, it's a really complicated spider's web and it's really difficult to take that spider's web and make a single linear th thread out of it. So let me, let me lay out a situation for you. Um, way far ago in our collective evolutionary history, mankind started creating family units right? As like proto-tribes. Those family units, what would happen? Those behaviors that, those behaviors that they were biologically incentivized to go pursue because of reward structures in their brain um, did two things. Those that enacted those behaviors and were successful passed those traits on to further generations. Those that didn't, didn't they were also around to describe, to pass on that experiential knowledge to the further generations in the forms of stories that became myths, that became legends, that became religious dogma. Once those proto-tribes start gathering into tribes and then regions and then proto-nations and city-states and then empires and then countries and nations as we envision them today consolidated all of those presented in narrative successful patterns of behavior from their ancestries and consolidated them together in order to do that you have to abstract it another level so that way that meta behavior of courage or whatever um encompasses as many people within the group as possible. If it's too particularized to a specific family member or a specific family group, when you have a collection of hundreds of different family groups, then that particular behavior isn't going to be able to be mapped onto another family's familial experience. Whereas if you abstract it out, it can be applied more generally. That's how our religious traditions started forming. Um, on top of all of that, and, and here's the icing on the cake for me, it's like really adds to the nail to the coffin in, I don't know if it's my original claim, I haven't had enough time to do enough research, but what I'm going to claim is our dopamine systems being primarily responsible for setting up the conditions to give us the culture that we experience today. What happens during the adolescent years dopamine receptor overproduction 
those dopamine receptors and dopamine or the reward system channels that are successful and get used, get more myelinated because they're being used more, which means they have a lower sense of being pruned or a lower chance, I should say, of being pruned during that pruning process. By seeking reward, we are actively engaging in modifying our statistical average of behavior because we are, we are choosing to myelinate certain pathways over others. And then we're describing that experience or the patterns of behaviors that allowed us to have that experience to the next generation that's going to do the same, further myelinating those specific pathways over others, causing not just like we, 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 we're not just inheriting cultural evolution. We're inheriting a cultural evolution that occurred because of a neurophysiological evolutionary process. That's why we're so resonant with religious traditions. Even if we're like, look at today, more people would, were kind of loathe to use religious, but the majority of people at least are spiritual, if not religious, right? Humankind has a propensity for, I call it the religious function. We have re religion serves a specific function in our psychological framework to help us be stable, to give us a starting point for orienting ourselves in the world. But it's not just that. It's not just that we have that disposition and Judeo-Christian tradition happened to be the one that we got inherited or that we inherited from the culture. I think those two are intricately connected and it doesn't necessarily have to be Judeo-Christian, right? Cause you have the Hindu tradition and the Buddhist tradition and the Muslim tradition. Um, but I think it should not be controversial to make the claim that our inherited cultural evolutions map specifically to the neurophysiological evolutionary inheritance that we've received. What do you think about that? I was trying to make talking points as you were talking in my head. So I'm going to go back through. Um, but what you, I think you're dead on because I'm thinking of like rites of passages, like now you're a man, now you're a woman. Um, those are things that we prepare kids for, and a lot of them are religious, not all of them are. Um, like in America, you start driving at 16 for the most part, and you're trained for that. And, you know, um, but there's other rites of passages. I know there's cultures where you take a certain drug and then you trip on it. And then afterwards, you're a man and you do that like on your 17th birthday. Um, and those are kind of getting at what you're talking about. Like we're instilling those rewards at that age when you're most prone to it. There's not any rites of passage that occur at like 35. <laughs> They're always when you're going to be susceptible to that. And it's a way of like social programming, which that's a really harsh word. It's not malicious, <laughs> but you're kind of programming and instilling these values that you went through and these specific experiences that you went through on your children 
which leads to the next generation having similar dopamine pathways as you because you all did the same thing and you know there's cultures where like when you're 12 you start going out on hunts and you kill your first deer at 13 and it's awesome and it's uh yeah so i think what you're saying has a lot of evidence to support it in the way that we already do things um and uh let's see the next point i had was that like high dopamine like high susceptibility to your own dopamine is a trait that's seen in kind of the greats um so like the best fighter pilot the best fighter pilot if you sat him down in anywhere in the world if you take every country's best fighter pilot they are probably going to have um pretty high susceptibility to dopamine and a lot of receptors for it and a lot going on because that's the only way they could scare the pants off of themselves every day doing fighter pilot stuff. Um, and the stakes are really high and they're the fastest person on earth at any given time they do their job that day. And they keep going back and doing it because they're susceptible to that. Whereas people who don't have high dopamine <laughs> susceptibility aren't going to choose that job. Um, and so it's, that's something that they've also found in like criminals and serial killers is very similar high dopamine susceptibility. That reward system is the only thing that matters and they're adrenaline junkies and that can be funneled in a good way, you know, doing very intense like brain surgery and in a bad way, stealing cars or something like that. Um, so it's uh, it's a double-edged sword, I guess. Yeah, that's um, that's why I think it's important to well, two things to be said about that. First of all, um, I had this thought a couple years ago about why, at least in the United States, that Western civilizations is, seems precarious and unstable, at least more so now than it has been the past couple decades. And I think a big part of that is we as a culture have shied away from rites of passage, right? Yes, graduating high school is a big mark in your life, but I don't think that is an effective replacement for more personalized Right. It, those, those ceremonies are important. For example, we were, we did super Saturday. So the opening season ceremonies for the little league that uh, my kids play in, we call it super Saturday and they, they do a parade of teams where they have all the teams line up and they announce them and they thank the sponsors because each team's individually sponsored. And then they announce the coaches and yada, yada. And the players get to walk on the, the big majors field in the middle and get shown off and everybody's cheering and it's a big thing. Um, and, and I had two thoughts when I was doing that. A, how much it matters to the players to be embedded in a system. Because if you're not embedded in, in, in a system at all, then you're utterly alone. And we're not meant to be utterly alone. We have, we have inherited a cultural and neurophysiological evolution that has designed us in a way to be social creatures. If we are by ourselves for too long, we go clinically insane. 
Right? That's why you have the stereotype of the hermit that lives out in the woods by themselves. And all they do is talk to themselves and they sound drunk all the time, probably because they're alone and they are drunk all the time, but also because they've had that social deterioration. Um, but I also thought of too, how stabilizing it is for the parents that most of us in some form or fashion went through those similar experiences of being embedded in a system and are now at a different level. And I, I don't mean to use like the up and down as like the pyramid of, you know, social stratification, but we're participating in a different way. And it is that participation that we get validation out of as well. Um, so yeah, there's there's the rite of passage thing that that I think is is wicked important, and we seem to be shying away from that. And I think if we bring that back and make it, I hate to use the term normal because there's so much negative connotation with it, but make it normal or make it the norm again that at certain ages we have rites of passage that will help give our youth at least something to ground a stable identity onto. Because we have a lot of kids in, and it started with my generation, but I see the fruits of it, especially in the high school generation now, and then the elementary generation as they come up are going to be really bad with it, that these kids don't have anything to graft a stable identity onto. In fact, the American youth is more destabilized than they have been in generations. Now, part of that is by nature because those dopamine receptor overproduction and the heightened sensitivity, meaning increased dumpage of dopamine, right? That they are, they're chasing those dopamine rushes and always have been at the adolescent age, but they're going into that with even less Right. This is a conversation I had with my students a couple of weeks ago talking about World War I on the pros and cons of nationalism. We say nationalism and people are like, oh, bad. And for good reason, because a lot of harmful things have been done in, in, because of nationalism. That extreme to where our national values are better than yours and that justifies our imposing them onto you. But without social cohesion, what, you know, what do we have? Nationalism on the light end. And, and we could say, we, we can nuance this and say that, that patriotism as the lighter end of nationalism, as a healthy form of nationalism is important. Right? To be a United States citizen means something. To be German means something. To be Japanese means something. And not just with your ethnicity or your DNA ancestry or anything like that, but those cultural values that have held that culture together through time, that social cohesion, that stability of the system that we talked about in, in our free will episode. I think those rites of passage in instilling, even if it's personal, right? So I've been thinking of what list of family values do I want to teach my kids and instill in them that will be applicable for them to teach theirs? Because I could sit down and I can list a couple from our family through observation and anecdotal evidence. But 
most families don't have that anymore, right? Just that list of like, here's the three to five things that are worth dying for in this life. And here's why. Um, and and to, to codify that, so like that, that whole rite of passage thing, it doesn't have to be like national cohesion. It can be community cohesion. It can be family cohesion, something like that. Um, I would say like nationalism itself is neutral and it's something that's going to happen. And what happens is that's used as a tool. It's a really easy way to control a lot of group of people. Um, so yeah, I would go, I would say it's not bad to have nationalism, but you may be controlled by someone um, who kind of latches on to that. And it's a, very easy method to get a lot of people on the same page, which is kind of a goal. Um, and that it's, it's more of a tool that can be used for evil, but itself not a big deal. Mm -hmm. It's not a big deal to be like, yeah, bratwurst, I'm German. Um, but it's, uh, having that, you know, it just helps to be aware. If you feel that way, uh, make sure no one's manipulating you. I mean, they are, but be aware of it. And, uh, Make your own choices. Yeah, that, that's why Aristotle said, I think it was in his book, The Nicomachean Ethics, he listed out, rank ordered the best types of governments um, as far as ideal versus practicality. And what he came up with was like, the list was, the list for ideal was inverted for ability to be corrupted. Right. So at the bottom mm -hmm. of the ideal list would be like your, your autocracy, your absolute tyranny, but it's also like the least easily, I don't want to say the least easily, it devolves less than the other ones because the corrupt person is already in charge. Whereas you have something that would be at the top of the ideal list, like a democracy, and that runs the risk of devolving proportionately at a much greater decline because out of that out of that hypothetically 100% democratic system that opens the door for the populist leaders to be shoveled to the front of the pack to represent this group or that group's interests and is cutthroat enough to do whatever right that that's that's what it is um that's why Athens, for as wholly democratic as it was, was still restrictive in that, right? Like some only, I'm gonna, I was, I was going to throw out a percentage, but it was going to be grossly wrong no matter how I decided to slice it. Like half of Athens was still slaves, right? You had to be a 100% citizen of Athens and both of your parents had to be citizens of Athens for you to be able to participate in the democratic process. But everybody that could, could to the same weight. Um, that, you know, that's why the founding fathers tried to fix that with the federal republic to prevent a tyranny of the masses propelling in. And like, that's, that's what happened in Weimar Germany in the interwar years, right? The Treaty of Versailles after World War I decimated the German political structure and the German economic structure to where it opened the door for populist leaders like Adolf Hitler to champion the cause of, hey, we're going to fix the system. 
and everyone was starved enough to be like, okay, yeah, by any means necessary, it's better than starving to death. It's obviously a gross, grossly oversimplified, but that you use that as an example of that ability for democracies to devolve into those corrupt populist leaders. But I think if yeah, we... The... Go ahead. Oh, the, the information war and like the propaganda and, you know, you're never, you're never out of it. Like if you're aware that there's bad information and good information, um, it's, there's not a single person on the planet who can sit back and be like, I am not influenced by these ideals or that ideals. We're all a part of this as a group. And even, I guess what I'm trying to get at is it is not the people's fault when this information kind of just spirals down into, you know, World War Three. <laughs> so it is well, something I mean, that we're all subjected to constantly. And it's... That's tough because it is, but it isn't. Right. And you're absolutely right. And you hit the nail on the head with that whole... By the time the information about anything important trickles down to us, it's been so far removed and interpreted so many times that we can question its relevance at all. But people still have individual human agency. We can still recognize that these forces are being exerted on us and minimize the effect of those to some degree and, and I don't, I don't want to sound like like a pomo trad right the postmodern traditionalist it's like yes we know that tradition and culture is like watching a wwe fight and like we all just have to fake our way through it but we're okay with that because it gives us results like i'm not, I'm not saying that i do think that there by my spiel earlier, I do think that there is a biological argument to be made about how our culture generated and where it came from. And that culture is not just culture and tradition are not just social constructions. I think, I think that's the key point that I'm trying to make with that whole mm, yeah. evolutionary process of dopaminergically moderated behavior that we have inherited both the physical component of that because those that followed those and succeeded gave us the dna to have that disposition already right so it's not just it, it's it's a feedback loop it's not just that my great grandfather's myelinated dopaminergic pathways got passed on to my great grandfather because he learned through culture to embody the same behaviors. It's that over time, the disposition for those pathways to already be primed biologically before you receive that culture because of your DNA is processing too. And then the culture feeds on top of that. That's why I'm saying that, that at least to some degree, I don't know I don't know how confident I am in saying at what percentage or to the totality of it or whatever, but to some degree, I feel confident saying that culture 
is a result of those biological processes. It's not just like a whole bunch of group of people sat down. It's like, you know, it would be really bitching. Let's have these values and make sure that for the next 2000 years that people follow them because eh, I like the way they look. Yeah, this is our brain functioning correctly and well. Um, and I think if you were to like give retroactive amnesia to a group of a thousand people and put them on an island, it wouldn't matter. <laughs> they would just because they didn't remember where that habit came from or where that ideal came from or that opinion. I think they would still have it, um, even if you were to wipe them all and say, go create a culture. Let's see what happens. Um, it would you'd just recreate what we're already living in because it's more than just I saw someone else do this and so I'm going to do it. It's well, a bit and- more concrete than that. I can see how people are lured into thinking or being convinced that these things are pure social constructions and we can rewrite the social code and reconstruct these things however we want to. So during our break, I just typed in case study dopamine into Google Scholar to see what there was. And almost everything was about Parkinson's disease because that's kind of the only um, clear dis- like medical disease that we have that is directly related to dopamine. Um, there's a lot of unclear stuff like autism and other strange diseases, schizophrenia, all of that. Um, could kind of probably as we get more technology be related to that system. Um, but Parkinson's definitely is. So there's a lot about that. And um, this is not an area of expertise for me, but there was some really interesting stuff about creativity, which I linked to an article from April of 2014 called Dopamine and the Biology of Creativity, Lessons from Parkinson's Disease. Um, and they basically did treatment for Parkinson's disease, which is all the treatment is trying to get your dopamine levels to a certain place where they're not going to make you freak out and um, be able to live your life how you want. So uh, I think they did neurosurgery. No, they did, they did a deep brain stimulation and um, a couple of medications and it did impact creativity um, which, you know, what is creativity is a whole nother question, but there's a couple of lines in here that I thought I wanted to pose to you to see how you would interpret these and what we were talking about earlier with the cultural, um, our system of culture, our scaffolding for what we believe and how we believe and how we do it comes from that system. And Before you dive into that, can I just wrap up what I was trying to discuss? Or I remember exactly where I was at. Um, I wanted good, to respond. I Go ahead. Okay. No, I, I wanted to respond to your give a thousand people amnesia, put them on an island, and see what happens. In suspecting that culture similar, or at least with enough overlap to what we have inherited, would arise, and that got me thinking about that social construction piece because 
you know, I was mid-sentence with explaining why I think it's easy for people to be duped or convinced into everything about culture and values and stuff like that is a social construction because we are inherited, we inherit that biologically generated and we'll say fossilized patterns of behavior as culture, religion, whatever. Um, and those are passed down to us from unique particular life experiences. This is, I took a class at Catawba, um, Catawba College in Salisbury called uh, Cultural Geography that looked at that and how environments shape the cultures that arise in them. So we could take those thousand people and we can put them on an island and they will produce a culture that's unique to the patterns of behavior for success on that island. Now, a lot of those are going to overlap because a lot of those behaviors are going to be um, resilience and honor and um, compassion, reciprocity, all of these things that we know are functional or that we know that human beings can create functional societies as a backbone of. But a lot of the unique manifestations of those are going to be particularized to that island. And I think it's that misinterpretation of tradition as being oppressive because it's nested in those ancient environments that it was produced in is what lends itself to be easily misinterpreted as just socially constructed. Because we, 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 it's easy for us to skip that disconnect or to have that disconnect between they were trying to abstractly generalize what worked for them and pass it on. And we've lost the nuance of the particular environments that they were responding to. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think a great case study for that too is if you look at like native American cultures who were forced off their land and put in a new spot and the, you know, spirit of what they believed was still there, but it just did not survive. Like a lot of that culture is gone forever because yeah. they were no longer riding horses through the plains and you, it, it just couldn't sustain. Well, in, in perfect example of that, um, I forget which tribe, but it was in Canada. And when they got moved onto their reservation, there was already, well, A, most of them didn't want to go because like you said, their culture was tied with their practices and their practices were tied with their location, right? It's like a triple Russian nesting doll there. Um, but when they got moved, many of the pathologized behaviors that are stereotypically applied, like low work ethic, disposition towards alcoholism, things like that. A lot of those behaviors arose because just like, exactly like you're suggesting, the cultures that they brought with them didn't map onto the new environments that they were placed into effectively enough. So those patterns of behavior weren't successful anymore. And it, it, it could be even something as similar as they used to live in round huts, teepees, whatever the non-derogatory term for their, their domiciles were because, you know, it simulated equality at the family table or something like that. And then they get put into square segmented houses to where like they don't even have a cultural framework with which to navigate that physical space the same way that they navigated the physical space they came from. 
There's also a lot of not just like reports like, you know, in Canada, which is, you know, particularly vile towards their native populations had, you know, they went to a specific school and that practice was only in place for like 20 years, like not that long, but that was enough to destroy all of that knowledge and that language and it was all gone and they were like oh sorry we've you know changed our minds and it was too late and you know forcing them to dress a different way and learn a different language and change their name to you know john smith from whatever it was before and sustain that i think i don't know there's definitely going to be like a point of no return but it is not mm -hmm. that long it's got to be like 15 years where okay, like you've taken me out of my culture for 15 years. You've taken all of us out of it. There's no one to go back to. Um, and it's just gone. And it's, yeah, it's <laughs> fragile. So, mm -hmm. I mean, obviously well, the, like the native peoples have recovered and it's different now um, because a lot of that was lost. Yeah, they've, they've, they're working on finding a new, updated tradition with emphasis on your last point that much of that is lost and it's not going to be able to be transferred. So I think it's, I don't have any evidence to back this up, but I'd be, I'd be willing to guess that it's roughly one generation's worth of disconnect. Right. If you can get a generational, I would even say it's less, if you can get a generational interruption. Well, and this is why I'm so hesitant with, so much of the Actually, so much of the ideology of the social justice movement and here's what i mean by that because it's rooted in that social constructivism that i fear what will happen when they start pulling strings to socially engineer the solutions to the problems that they've identified as being socially constructed who knows, right? We didn't understand how embedded cultural consciousness is with the environment that it arose in until after forcibly moving mass numbers of populations into different environments and having it just devastate those populations. Anytime that someone in charge has made a social engineering policy we've found more problems that it caused than problems that it fixed because there's so much that's interconnected that we don't even know of yet. Just like with trying to map the human brain, when things are working properly, it's almost impossible to know what region is doing what. It's only until there's a deficiency or a problem or a deformity that we can isolate, oh, well, language is lost and that area is not lighting up. We can deduce through a priori experiences that that region probably has something to do with language right and and we run the risk of social engineering our way into having the systems catastrophically fail and it's through that failure that we can learn what each system did so we can rebuild them better in the future but how much damage is that going to cause along the way yeah the the key to preserving that is going to be variety so there's mm -hmm. some place to, you know, someone's doing something different well, and it works variety better and we can and kind of survive. Incremental.
progress, right? Using the, the same way that we would use a scientific method to study the effects of anything on anything, right? You make little adjustments and then you record the results. You make little adjustments, you record the results. You make little adjustments, you record the results. Once you find those patterns of adjustments and results, then you can play around with that a little bit more and see what else might be tied to it. But if you just jump straight into the deep end and you haven't ever been in the kiddie pool, like you're going to drown. <laughs> there's, there's no, it, it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. You can't build the submarine while, or, or I was going to say build the submarine while driving it, but I don't, I don't know. That just doesn't seem to make sense to me because I don't know if you drive submarines. You can't build that plane while you're flying it. Yeah. Um, I think kind of to tie it back to the, like teenage years and adolescent years being the time where that pruning, I was pruned as my grandfather pruned before me, like <laughs> system gets put in place. I think if you took a group of 50 year old Native Americans, move them to a new spot for 15 years, realize that was shitty and moved them back, it would be fine. But if you took a group of five year olds, yeah and put them in that new spot for 15 years, put them back when they're 20, you've done enough damage. Like, so what you were saying earlier was one generation removed. I think if you just get children and raise them in a different environment with different values in a different language, then that's all it would take is if you're in charge of those formative years, then you're going to do a lot of damage. And it's not, impossible to undo it but if there's no one to show you how to undo it meaning you've killed all of the older native americans mm -hmm. but oh we can't kill the children that's rude um which is what happened then you're well, going to destroy a whole we culture. had a conversation about this in my classroom a couple weeks ago discussing the russian revolution before we even got to the revolution we were talking about um Alexander III in the late 1800s and his crackdown on culture and what I call assimilation laws. I don't know if that's what they're actually called. They might just be Alexander's laws or whatever. Um, but you can tell looking at the list of the, the prescriptions that he had for how to tone down the revolutionary spirit in Russia. It, it was assimilation. Um, illegal to talk bad about the absolute power of the czar no official language other than russian orthodox no official language other than russian or assimilation laws and enforced through and this is where we had an interesting conversation in my classroom enforced through censorship codes secret police and teacher spies so teachers were required to report on all of their students you know whatever the frequency was to make sure they were being good little Russians. Um, primary target of the secret police was high schools and colleges. And my classroom was like, well, why? And I was like, because you guys are the hardest to control. And I think this is why, because of the, the dopamine receptor overproduction and the dopamine reserve overstimulation and the under 
the reduced ability of the prefrontal cortex to moderate that. Because that's what happens in, in adults. Once we mature, our prefrontal cortex can't exert enough, exert enough control over the reward now systems to where we can, we can plan and we can set goals and achieve those without being. We can both see the forest and the trees rather than just seeing the trees. And that's what adolescents are, high school, early college years. That's why most of the revolutionaries, that's why most of the people out protesting in the summer of 2020 were young people because they are biologically primed to see the trees and not to be able to see the forest for the trees. They're biologically primed to see the change now at whatever cost without being able to do a cost-benefit analysis and doing things incrementally because they are primed for that. Yeah, that's why, you know, Joan of Arc was like 17 or something. Mm -hmm. Everyone's like, well, that's so young. It's like, she could only have been 17. No one else is dumb enough to do all the yeah. shit she did. Well, and, and that's the thing. There's, there's a really cool phenomenon that happens that as people get older, they naturally tend to sway more and more conservative. Now, part of that is from a purely practical standpoint, right? So like I have a house and a mortgage now. If we dissolve the system, I lose that investment. Boo. You know, I want to preserve what I have worked for. The other part of it to too. Lose. Yeah. The other part of it too, though, is we've seen the patterns of behavior that have worked for twice the amount of time than the adolescents that are bucking the system that is trying to give them those patterns of behavior. And I don't think we, and this is, this is um, a low blow towards our Western system for as much as I venerate it and want to say we need to continue it. I don't think we in the West have done a good job of enforcing that these traditions we're passing on to you are starting points. As we get older, we tend to grip onto those. You know, you can't teach an old dog new tricks proverb this is partly why because we've 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 all right Can you hear me? I can. Through the microphone? Probably. Yeah, I hear that tapping. Okay, it's not popping up in my garage band, which is weird, but as long as you can hear me, we're going to keep going. So. Okay. Did you hear that? Yeah. Okay. Well, then we're just going to keep driving on then. Um so like like i was saying um the old proverb you can't teach an old dog new tricks is true in that sense of we've already pruned those surplus dopamine channels that would pr um that would prime us for novel experiences because we've pruned those we're less prone for novel experiences. And I guess our trait openness goes down. Right. Um, 
but emphasizing that these traditions we're passing on are starting points to help get you an orientation on your map. So that way you can figure out where the map leads you. I think if we phrase it better, if we present this knowledge better, then more people will be receptive to it as opposed to feeling like we're turning them into robots to fit a specific niche in a specific box. Like if they view the knowledge instilled upon them as a tool rather than a law. Yeah. 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 You know, you don't have to be this way, but start this way. And then the ones that work for you, hang on to the ones that cause you strife, you know, like don't throw out the baby with the bathwater because how deciding when switching to a new strategy is going to be beneficial and not just quitting is really difficult. Right. But you know, once you've established a pattern that that isn't helping, then plug and play and try something different. Just plug and play that small piece and keep the stuff that does work, right? And in, in this, to use the map metaphor again, right? And me handing you a map isn't going to help you figure out where you need to get to or how to get to where you're trying to go. It's only by giving you the map and showing you where you are on the map. And then lining that up with where another landmark is so you can triangulate your real world space with the space on the map and have it oriented. And I think that's what culture and tradition is supposed to do. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to give us the starting point, give us the orientation to point out this is a spot in the real world. This is where it's at in the map. This is where you are in the real world. This is where you are in the map. Figure out how to get from point A to point B. Right. And what that's also going to require is being taught, you know, critical thinking skills and analytical skills and interpretation skills, which are kind of, in my opinion, it's assumed that you'll gain those rather than explicitly taught in a lot of Mm -hmm. cases and it's like, I hope you can do this. I'm going to ask you to um, when you turn 18, but I'm not going to tell you how. And I think there probably are ways, you know, I think that happened with standardized testing as well, where people were expected to bubble in A, B, C, and D. Um, and that was all you needed to do in order to have proven that you've got a successful education. But it should be a bit more than that. Yeah, because you have to be able to implement that knowledge. Implement that knowledge in yeah. practical ways according to the unique parameters and boundaries of the environment you're implementing it in. What, um, what points from that um, Parkinson's and dopamine article did you want to bring up? Let's return to that because that that was interesting. You said that deep brain stimulation affected dopamine levels and creativity. What correlation did it have? Dopamine levels went down, creativity went down? Or was it Um, dopamine levels went up and creativity went down? That um, direct versus inverse proportionality would be interesting yeah this says one out of the 11 patients remained 
creative after surgery and reduction of the dopamine agonist was significantly correlated to the decrease in creativity of the whole population of the study. So a dopamine antagonist would get rid of dopamine, a dopamine agonist would increase dopamine. And um, so reducing a dopamine agonist <laughs> would reduce dopamine. And um, therefore, and reduce. that decreased creativity. Okay, creativity. See, that that, yeah. that makes sense because based on what I was reading in the neuroscience of adolescence, that it is that overproduction of dopamine and dopamine receptors that increases trait openness, which is willingness to be exposed to novelty and the unknown. Yeah. So I guess I, I guess we have a direct yeah. correlation there with with dopamine production levels and willingness to engage with novel ideas, which the result of engaging with novel ideas is creativity. Presumably, well, not presumably, I guess still presumably, if you increased dopamine, you would increase free thinking, which is true. Um, just in the introduction of this article, they bring up... Um, Let's see, what they say is a link seems to be present between mental illness, notably bipolar disorder, dopamine, and creativity. Many well-known artists, uh, Munch Hemingway Wolf, suffered from bipolar disorder, and 38.3% of British artists who receive awards are treated for affective disorders. Um, so there's a strong dopaminergic component um, between people who we reward for their creativity and their art um, and people who have issues with that, which I think is interesting. Um, and then it goes on to talk about how uh, psychoactive drugs can also increase creativity and free thinking, which also I, I would, increases schizophrenia. But Yeah. I, well, and cause here's the thing I would have to imagine that that unnatural altercation I'm sorry, unnatural alterations of your dopamine system. Say cocaine, for instance, dumps your dopamine reserves, which is why you feel good when you take drugs that make you feel good. Dumping that dopamine reserve fires all of your dopamine receptors, including the soon-to-be-pruned ones, thus reactivating and remyelinating those dwindling channels. So it is, in a sense, it is physically helping you think in ways that you could not think before. Yeah. That's interesting. And... Spoiler alert well, and note reported. to anybody listening, we are not suggesting that you do drugs to think differently. Right. We're just saying there is that that correlation and effect caused between the two. Yeah, you're going to want to let your brain develop naturally. That tends to be the best way to make sure you get to adulthood alive and sane is by not doing drugs during your formative years and keeping that yeah. habit to a minimum. It's It's really difficult to build a stable house on a shaky foundation. That's what I tell my high school students because I'm not a saint. Um, I'm not immune from any of the 
fallacies that many of my students fall into with their behaviors. I'm human too. But it's like I tell them all the time, the whole reason that nationally tobacco got moved to 18 is because any mind-altering substances run the risk of changing your brain's actual pathways because they're not finalized yet. After the age of about 20 or 21, you're not changing the fundamental pathways. You're just firing them in different orders. More, more or less. It's obviously more complicated than that. But, but one, once your brain that can't teach an old dog new tricks, once your brain is kind of finalized, then the unintended consequences of meddling with that are way lower than what they would be otherwise. There's at least at that point, there's a baseline to return to Mm -hmm. when you stop doing drugs. Um, But even, you know, there's evidence all over that, like, if you have a catastrophic stroke at 30, um, you can regain probably all of your skills eventually. Um, So even if that section of your brain is damaged and the cells die um, by that stroke, another area of your brain can pick up that slack and you can learn to talk again. Um, So I say that to say there's never a point where it's safe where you're like, I'm good, my brain's finalized. There's always going to be changes, which is good because if something happens, your brain is able to adapt and pick up the slack and save that dead area. So you should never yes and no, but definitely don't do drugs when you're little. Because this brings me back to a topic. I think I think we talked about it during our pilot episode of I read an article a couple months ago about the effects of trauma and adverse childhood experiences on developing brains. Um, to to all of our loyal followers and listeners, I teach adolescents, which is why I'm prone to looking at the literature for how adolescents work. I'm not just a creeper that's like, I love kids. Um, right? But the, the, the interesting thing that I took away from that study was adverse childhood experiences mature the adolescent brain faster than what their peers' brains are maturing at. And I think here's why. Because when our brains get into fight or flight mode, we prioritize channels that we know can have an effect. That's why, you know, you have the preferred neuronal pathways for doing, for brushing your teeth and blah, 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 whatever. The ones that fire in my brain to brush my teeth are going to be a little bit different than yours because for whatever reason, the first time I did it, I did it this way and it fired these pathways. And like any other muscle, those are the ones that get stronger. Well, what happens is, and this is my hypothesis, what happens is when adolescents and children undergo traumatic experiences, the pathways of their brain that were active during that experience are myelinated faster than the other areas of their brain. That coupled with, like that is the forced increase rate of maturation. That's why when, well, in, in, okay, before I get ahead of myself, the adverse reaction to that or the adverse effect of that is in adolescence, you have reduced brain, brain plasticity which is why you have those students and come from broken homes. You have those clients for you, for example, that come from adverse 
formative years are slower to learn things or more confrontational when placed in those positions where they have to think in ways that their brain is unaccustomed to. Um, they shut down, they get aggravated, angry, right? Trying to ask some of my students to read one sentence out loud is the same as me asking them to shoot their mother, right? Th that's how they respond to it because it's outside of their familiar and it's outside of their myelinated pathways. The second thing that happens, they lose that brain plasticity to be able to adapt, to use those different parts of their brain to accomplish the same task. Um, but the second thing that happens is when you go into your post-traumatic stress disorder um, experience, tick, whatever the, the specific nomenclature is, right? When you have your anxiety attack from your PTSD, that's why you're back in the same spot in your memory every time. That's why you have that same experience. It's literally physically grafted onto your brain because it myelinates those pathways that were active during the experience faster than others. You have reduced brain plasticity. So when you get put under stress, when you get put under anxiety, when you have a PTSD episode, it is those same pathways that were active during the traumatic event that fire again and bring you back to that. That's why, um, you know, me, for instance, about every, every three to six months, I have the war dream. Now, I didn't have any explicitly traumatic events, like on this day, I got shot type of thing to return to, but it's the same people I served with. It's the same environments. It's the same muscle memory that I was using during those uh, extended events of trauma, so to speak, um, that chronic fight or flight that you live in for a while by trying to mitigate all risk by assuming all risk um you know it manifests in the same way it's the same feelings the dream the particulars of the dream might be different but it's the same feelings because it's the same pathways firing over and over and over yeah the and even if you're not in that event when like if your heart rate goes from you know one to 120 your brain is going to react to that using the pathways that it knows mm -hmm. um, that it's used before and that it's used to using. And for a while, that's going to be like, oh, I need my gun or like get down or, um, you know, for some people it's the like, you know, we say there's like fight or flight. There's a third one, fight, flight or fawn, which is, you know, shut down, don't resist, mm -hmm. whatever. So you'll see it's the, that the, the prey for, response to predators, right? The deer in the yeah. headlights. Yep. And that works for some people. And so that's what they're going to do again. Um, if you're alive to do it, if it, if it kept you alive, your brain will do it again. The only reason that you wouldn't do that again is if you didn't survive. <laughs> and so, you know, it or worked. you were in a position and you had worked on creating the cognitive structures that allowed you to recognize the onset of such um, episodes and to navigate that through coping skills and self-regulation. Yeah. Which is extremely the... difficult for anybody to do. Just, just because well, I can put into words the process to do that doesn't mean I'm capable of pulling myself out of my own PTSD depression episodes, right? It's still extremely difficult. And 
you have to, however many times that response worked for you when you were in that environment, you have to do it like for one time that it worked, you have to practice the correct coping skill probably 10 times to overcome that one time. And then when you add up like months of deployment that, I mean, you know, you can't just put it on a graph, but if you could, you would see there was yeah. 230 times where this worked. So I have to do, you know, 2300 and practice it the other way. Well, that's, which that's is why we had sometimes a, um, we, we had an unofficial formula for the physiological effect of high risk jobs like that. Because obviously, you know, the military isn't necessarily, you can coal miner, police officer, right? There's um, linemen. So the people that run the um, electrical lines during the storms replace the power poles that get knocked out by snowstorms and stuff like that. Um, so the, our unofficial formula that we used was that every year of military service counts as two years of life. If you're in a high risk environment, or a high-risk job like infantry or aviation, right? Every year in the military counts as three years, right? You add another year to that. And then for every close call that you have, for every friend that has died doing the same job that you do, right? Because that's where most of my recurring, and I hate to call it trauma because I know so many people that have been through way worse than what, but it is technically the the psychological description of it is trauma but that's where most of mine comes from it's not like i had a couple close calls i had a couple near crashes and stuff like that but it was mainly the results of seeing people that did the same job that i did at the same job same time i was doing that job not make it out mm -hmm. knowing that okay tomorrow i have to jump in a helicopter and do it all over again right After and that, you're fully aware of the risks yeah and in that and this, this is something that's fascinating when I talk about the enlightenment with my students I can always go back and I've got a couple key quotes from Thomas Hobbes that I use to to differentiate between Hobbes and Locke and their two um, English perspectives and it always fascinates me because you go back to Leviathan which was written in like 1650 um, and Thomas Hobbes is explaining that it's not the conditions of war that weigh down on people, although they do. It's the disposition leading up to it when there is no certainty of avoiding it. It's essentially him saying that it is that anxiety of not knowing if slash when that is the most damaging to people. And I think that's it. Right. Doing the job that I did, you had to kind of just there was at least twice where I had to mentally accept that we're going down today and just pass it on. Otherwise you get you either fly or you fawn. Right. Mm -hmm. Those are the only those are the only three responses. Um and it is definitely that, don't want to fawn if you're in charge yeah. of a moving object. <laughs> and, and you don't want to fly because like, that's going to be unpredictable too. Um, so like, and that's, that's why it is so psychologically taxing to be in a job like the military, because 
it, it, half of it is not even the events that you go through, although those are significant. And I know for those that have gone through way worse, that it could be the significant experience of their military career. But that training of assuming that the worst is going to happen. So you can practice the muscle memory to mitigate how catastrophic the worst is going to be. And you can't turn that light switch back off. Mm -hmm. I think whenever I studied like PTSD, the best, um, what they found was that if a traumatic event happened and then you sent in the counselors to immediately start counseling, it made it worse. You saw higher PTSD symptoms when there was like yesterday, a tornado destroyed your house. You talked to the counselor the next day. Um, you were more likely to experience PTSD symptoms, which is not the goal of therapy. Um, mm -hmm. So what they found was that you just had to wait and see if someone would get PTSD symptoms. And then once they did, you could start therapy. But if you tried to be proactive about it, um, post-event pre-symptoms, it wasn't going to work. And they found that the best way to prevent PTSD was pre-event and pre-symptoms. So getting in there and practicing, like, if you have a traumatic event, this is how you should react and this is how you should practice and come to terms with it. And then once the event happens, you kind of have to stay hands off until that person shows symptoms or doesn't because not everyone does. Mm -hmm. And to me, that was really hard to read about because you see there's a problem you can predict you know there's this percentage of chance that this event will lead to ptsd and there's not anything you can do to stop it once that event has happened but they haven't developed symptoms yet and it's you know that feels like the time that you could do something to like all right this happened to me i'm not going to get ptsd because i'm going to do xyz and there's nothing you can do once it's happened uh, you just got to wait and see which is, I mean, that sucks. Um, but apparently there is some stuff you can do before the event yeah, to but this mentally is, this prepare. Is why, this is why I'm so big on trying to, trying to swing the pendulum back to a compromise between compassionate and... I don't want to say detached, but I can't think of another term to use right now. So we'll just use detached as a placeholder between compassionate and detached mentorship. I'm going to use mentorship because I'm talking about my relationship with my students and, and with my kids too. Um, this is why I think it was Freud said that the good mother necessarily fails. Because if you're too compassionate, if you protect your children from the world too much, if you don't let them experience at least enough trauma with which to develop coping skills, then the overbearing mother becomes the devouring mother in myth. Right? That is the, the dragon that hoards the gold. The gold is the children, but the children can't ever get out of the dragon's reach because it might get stolen or it's something, some inevitable hardship might happen because it's life and life is messy and complicated because people are messy and complicated. Um, 
And we don't want to do like sea turtles do and just be like, oh, hey, welcome to the world. Push, go swim, <laughs> right? Um, so, but, but to not expose our kids and our youth to hardship is doing them a disservice because when they will inevitably move out and experience that hardship, which is going to happen without fail, and they're out from underneath our umbrella, they have nothing with which to orient themselves or to try and navigate that, right? So they, so they need to, this is why the two-parent household is so crucial for every single measurable metric that we have suggests that two-parent household is the ideal for raising youth. And that's why, because you can give them that blend. Obviously, the way the brain is structured, we were talking earlier about paying attention to a particular while paying attention to the general at the same time, right? We're having to attend to two, to two different layers of complexity in the same way that our brain is bifurcated that way. Our environment that we're raised in needs to be bifurcated that way. You go to mom and I'm not, I'm going to use the traditional gender stereotypes because there's just, that's what has been inherited from culture and our biological evolution, not saying that this is the way it has to be. I think there's plenty of studies that says that two dads or two moms can be just as effective because it's still that dichotomy of the two parent household. One parent assumes the nurturing, compassionate you go to when you need soothing. The other parent is who you go to to teach you how to be tough. And it's the blend of those two that make you that help provide the foundation for you to be stable, right? This is, this is a topic that I'm trying to approach. And by trying to approach, I mean, I decided in the past couple of days that I need to try and develop some sort of program to give to our youth, because I think we are underserving our young men, at least in the United States, if not the West, because we have a, We have a push in our society that compassionate care is the only acceptable care. And that leads to a natural, to, to naturally effeminate many of our young men because they're told that they have to be more compassionate, more compassionate, more compassionate. But here's the thing. Female sexual selection evolutionarily suggests that nice guys finish last. If you're too compassionate, like you're going to struggle to find a partner. And not because they don't want you to be compassionate, but because if you're trying to start a family with somebody, and let's go back to the gendered stereotypes for a moment. If you're trying to start a family with somebody and you know you're going to be incapacitated for nine to 18 months through pregnancy and the infant stage, and you need someone that can help protect you. You need someone that's disagreeable enough, that's monstrous enough to send downstairs at two in the morning to keep the real monsters at bay as they're trying to break into your house. But they have to be compassionate enough to stick around and help raise kids. And that's a tough line to walk. And we're not preparing our young men to walk that line. We're pushing them towards the compassionate help raise kids or we're labeling them as utter monsters and we're not helping them find that balance point. I do think the 
like if you're trying to come across as 100% compassionate, it's going to be disingenuous, I suppose. So I'd say that's a factor too. Like if you're presenting yourself as something you're not, people are going to pick that out and avoid you. Yeah, there is that. Because we know the world is harsh and dark. So anybody that is utterly pure, just by statistical chance, is probably faking that purity. Also, too, those are the people that we stereotype as the always friend-zoned, right? Because they're the person that's going to be compassionate enough for you to go to for all of your problems and then stop. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. It's kind of funny to... Yeah, it's not something I think about that much, um, but there is, like, I guess going back to, like, allowing things that are hard to occur to Mm -hmm. people in general, um, there's, like, the law in Oregon says that I can't implement any treatment that has a punishment component, which is very funny to people who know how behavior works. Because yeah. when I say the word punishment, you think, you know, chains and whips and timeout and things. Um, that's what people are thinking that they're getting rid of, which good, you know, maybe we don't need to, you know, whip children in the town square to teach them X, Y, Z. But for me, punishment, like for some people, like putting on a suit is punishment and they don't do it. They don't want to do it. So they're not going to go to that event that requires them to dress a certain way Um, for like, I guess the point I'm trying to make is punishment happens and bad things happen and uncomfortable and aversive things happen all the time, every day, regardless of whether or not you contrive those experiences And it's better to allow scientists to study and implement treatments with punishment so that we understand how they work. And if this is something that's going to be affecting people in their environment, regardless of whether or not we contrive it, it should be something that we understand to the fullest capacity. And so I follow the law. I don't write any treatment with punishment, but I know that If I tell, like, at the same time, they've trained me with my, like, crisis intervention training to use the person's name and say stop. So I would say, like, Mitch, stop, Mitch, stop. And that's how, like, that's what I've been trained to say. And that is a punisher, (laughs) telling someone to stop and using their name and using that tone of voice, which they train me to do, is a punisher. And because the goal is to get them to stop doing it. So it's very funny. It's, you have to embrace those things. This is what I was talking about earlier with that social constructivism, not recognizing how much the baby's getting thrown out with the bathwater. Because what they're trying to do is decent people with good intentions being charitable and giving them the benefit of the doubt. Because if we ever engage in discussion with them, I would hope that they give me the benefit of the doubt too, right? Um, Good faith actors. So 
in good faith, I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt. And we'll say that these are good people with good intentions and terrible ideas. So I assume that the intention is that as therapy to help people, they're trying to mitigate any chance of that therapy becoming counterproductive and therefore harmful. But by definition, they're removing that lower limit of the boundaries of behavior, right? We, we, and, and we do. Anybody that knows anything about psychology or animal training or, or anything of those nature, behavior modification in general, whether it's to humans or, or animals, it doesn't particularly matter. We all know that positive reinforcement is the implementation of a reward. Like that's what this entire conversation has been about is the dopaminergic system and how it regulates our behavior. And implementation of a reward to fire that dopamine system is the most effective way of moderating and modifying behavior. It but also sometimes the, the way to do that, well, sometimes the way to do that is to, like we, we have to have contrast. A, we have to have that reminder that if we forget that X, Y, and Z are bad, right? So we have that in your face reminder. It might not be to us. It might be to Jimmy in the classroom next to me, but when he threw something at the teacher, he got suspended. Right. When he threw something at the counselor, he was politely asked not to return something along those lines. There's still that that punisher there, that hard line. And also, too, if all we're doing is flooding our system with surplus dopamine to try and find the right pathways to elicit the behaviors that are going to bring us the most success, how do we determine which ones are successful or not, if not from the rise and drop of the consequential dopamine levels. If you do something, if we're engaging in a risky behavior, trying to get reward and we don't, then that lack of dopamine primes us to not repeat that behavior. That's what punishment does neurochemically to you. And that technically is punishment. I was going to add, yeah. like, if I offer you $500, and you accept, and then you drop a piece of paper on the floor, and I go up, oh, you're not getting that money anymore. I've punished you. Even though I didn't give you anything, I didn't take anything that was yours away, I've removed something that you thought should have been yours. Mm -hmm. That's punishment. And that works well to reduce or prevent you know, challenging behavior that you don't want to see. And if you were to, you know, go do a bunch of cocaine and it ends up to be flour, you don't get your dopamine, you've been punished, you're not going to go back to that drug guy. Um, yeah. And so it's the definite, like saying, we're not going to punish our kids, we're only going to do positive things to change their behavior and to train them the way that they, so that they grow up the way that we want is just lying to yourself because even if you never yeah, it, take it, anything away that punish or them. it's just it's either that or just straight up naivety that the world is cupcakes and rainbows if people would just it's, get and, out of the way yeah. the world will be cupcakes and rainbows and that's the classical jean-jacques rousseau idea of like this the noble savage that Western society implemented by very smart people is doing damage and we need to return to our tribal roots, but we need to keep the good that we've been given because like 
being able to flip a light switch and have my lights turn on is really nice. You know, the fact that I can sit here right now and not hear people murdering each other over stuff because we have that social expectation that that's outside of the boundary of socially acceptable behavior, right? That's an aberration. That's not the norm. For 99% of human history, that has not been the standard. And we take that for granted. So there are good things there. But yeah, there, there is that human beings are a cancer. And if we just get out of our own way, if we stop conditioning through these socially constructed practices, bad people, and we socially construct good people, we can fix the problem. The issue is even those of us that have an entire lifetime's worth of study of these have no idea how complicated things are and how interconnected everything. We have no idea the forces that we're playing with. That's why being a parent yeah. is so hard because you think you're doing everything right. And then your kid hits the teenage years and they turn into a little asshole and you're like, Oh my God, I'm terrible. I did everything wrong and I can't undo it now. You know, Oh, that is, it, it's, it's so fascinating being a teacher and a parent that I can run these little social experiments. For the record, these social experiments are my observations. I don't implant something into a system to see how wild it makes people because that's torture. Right? Um, yeah, but no, the like, Human like Rights for, Committee would be yeah. at the door. Um, but no, I, I do. I, I ask William a lot of questions like, how can you prove to me you're not dreaming right now? just to get him to think about those complex things. Um, and as such, it's gotten to the point now where he's starting to ask those questions to Orion and I can just sit back and moderate to make sure that he's, you know, not psychologically torturing him, but just getting him to think in more creative ways. Yeah. Um, I got three eighteen, So we probably have a good hour and a half of material, something like that. Um, Anything else you want to cover before we jump off? I think for coming in with little to no plan and just knowing that we wanted to wrap up and finish up a, a more in-depth and abstract conversation of behavior, I think we knocked it out of the park. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about? There's like, uh, no, there was like three times today where I was like, damn, this is going well. Um, so yeah, I don't know what the change was, but it felt pretty good. Um, I think you bringing in the brain and how it works is really helpful to the conversation because it's a starting point and well and, and it's not us just it's the starting anecdotal point. ideas right it's not just me saying oh it's logical that culture came out of biological habit um it is pretty insurmountable evidence yeah um so yeah this went well i had a lot of fun and uh I'm excited to see people's reaction to this one. I think it'll be fun.